everyone, and welcome to GBA's January Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Daniel Neff, and today I'm joined by Michael Lightman and Doug Bell from EY. Thanks for being here, guys. And today we're going to dive a little deeper into some of the trade outlook that we covered on January's policy call earlier this month. Um, and so we're going to start first with China. Last week, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in the House sent a letter to USTR asking for a fair and thorough exclusion process for Section 301 tariffs. However, President Biden said at his press conference last week, that they just aren't there yet on removing the tariffs, that being the administration and USTR. So what are you guys' thoughts on how this may develop in the coming months? What does this say more broadly about the U.S. and uh, China trade relations? Well, thanks, Daniel. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think really it's, it's it's sort of interesting. It's worth actually just looking back just a, you know, a few more, few months back to the October Catherine Tai speech, right, where she rolled out, you know, the quote unquote strategy uh, wasn't a lot there, but one important element was that they would be renewing the exclusion process for existing items. Uh, and I think there was some expectation at that time that that would be extended beyond just the existing exclusion. Uh, so I think there's a bit of a disappointment and that I think the letter reflects that, uh, that that hasn't happened. So to your point, why is that the case? Well, I think there's a couple things going on. One um, is I think many folks are probably aware, we still have not seen sort of the penultimate, you know, what is the U.S.-China strategy? Um, you know, all reports are is that there is something that they have developed and considered, but they haven't, um, you know, that hasn't come out yet. And I would imagine at this point it's maybe something after the Olympics if it does come out. So that's a, a, a way of saying they really haven't, internalized, articulated the overall strategy, trade is one element of that, of course. Um, so they're sort of lacking sort of the, the the broader vision that would give guidance. But I think in a more sort of tactical sort of way, I, I do think that um, they just have not figured out how to sort of come up with their version of what, um, you know, that, that trading relationship should be with China. What are the types of products that you know merit uh, you know consideration for exclusions? What's the criteria? Uh, and so I think there's a bit of some policy paralysis uh, that's translating to um, you know the lack of movement on that. Uh, I think going forward, I, there probably will be some incremental progress. But by and large, if you're sort of reading the tea leaves and you know the politics, um, I don't think we're in a world where, you know, any active consideration of a large removal of tariffs uh, is, is under consideration. I think that's further exacerbated by uh, if you look at um, phase one deal, uh, which that has expired, uh, technically speaking. Uh, but, um, you know, we did not see China uh, meet the obligations that were embedded in that, including in some of the regulatory changes that were associated with it, at least uh, as USTR has defined it. So um, that's another way of saying, you know, why would you reward, uh, and that's how it would be perceived, China with a reduction in tariffs when um, there's still un unfulfilled commitments. Um, and USTR has made clear that their focus right now is less on the tariffs and more on those purchase commitments, uh, albeit with an expired agreement, it's a little unclear where that goes to. So maybe I'll, I'll uh, stop there for now. Great, Doug. So I'd be happy to add just a little bit more into those points. I think those are some interesting perspectives. And as you and I have talked, there's there's a lot of different 
components that have gone into the trade relationship, the use of the Section 301 tariffs across a wide range of products. And with the current really limited list of the, the revived exclusions potentially only covering a handful of categories, uh, it's very interesting to see that, that there appears to be a fair amount of dissatisfaction in the U.S. industrial manufacturing uh, community, as well as obviously from a legislator perspective, lots of lawmakers asking for that expansion, as you note, uh, to happen as soon as possible. The exclusion list is limited right now for certain industrial components, for thermostats, for medical supplies, which makes some sense, but also for bicycles and textiles, which will interplay a little bit later, the textiles, especially with another topic we're going to cover. And I think I saw a statistic, Doug, that it's around maybe 1%. The categories that have, that have been revived potentially only cover about 1% of what was happening originally at the exclusion application level. So it, it's a little bit of an olive branch right now. For it to be effective and meaningful, there, there needs to be some further expansion. I think that's that's clearly happening. I think in, in terms of the 301 itself uh, remaining in force, the Biden administration continuing to adhere to the, the prior administration's structure for those tariffs uh, and the original underlying pieces of the, the Section 301 study that triggered the initial actions and then the expanded actions is that companies have looked at and have optimized pretty well what they can do with alternative manufacturing, shifting of certain subcomponents into other countries, utilizing the U.S. country of origin, manufacturing rules, substantial transformation, for example, and actually seeking rulings. The number of rulings that U.S. Customs has issued around supporting new structures and new manufacturing flows is, is phenomenal when you go out and look at it as you know, somewhat of a trade wonk wanting to see how Customs has interpreted these rulings. And we've uh, worked on a number of those as well, where we've had clients that have had to look at their manufacturing platforms impacted by the tariffs. The thing that's most interesting is the range of the type of products that fell under the scrutiny of the Section 301 tariffs, especially later in the duration of the lists being issued. And right now, pretty much all eyes are monitoring the Court of International Trade on the lead case for HMTX. That is challenging if the Trump administration overreached on the list three and list four A products being beyond the original intent and authority that Section 301 provides the administration. So stay tuned to see how the court ultimately rules and what the impacts are going to look like. But for now, the signals seem to be from the current administration is that those will remain in place and they will monitor the outcomes that happen. And therefore, what we are seeing on a day to day basis on the ground are companies continuing to evaluate and look at their various alternatives and how to best mitigate and manage those tariffs as they stand. Thanks, Michael. And I think you are kind of getting to this, but I'm curious, you know, these section variable tariffs have been in place for some time now. Have they had this deep impact on cross-border investments or maybe not so much? So I'll start and then I'll, I'll let Doug add in as well. Uh, we absolutely have have seen a number of companies looking at and wanting to bring manufacturing platforms back to the United States or back to North America, but the trade rules are very complicated. Not only is it USMCA that needs to be contemplated in that sense if you're doing a North American platform, but you also have to look at your supply reliance on certain components that perhaps are just not readily available or affordable outside of their current sourcing 
or potentially coming from China. But it has absolutely impacted a number of decisions. Uh, we have seen certain companies make final decisions or determinations to be in Canada or in Mexico as opposed to the U.S. because of the current or the delayed potential of the Section 301 tariffs going away. But it's also just one component, I think, that comes to the decision, not only operationally and immediate on the tariffs, but I think also around potentially some of the geopolitical and the politics. So I think, Doug, that's a good point that you've brought up in our prior conversations as well. Do you want to address that? Yeah, Michael, you know, it, it really it's 301 tariffs, I think, have played a, a, a significant role, and they certainly got the ball rolling in terms of companies sort of reassessing, uh, you know, China as, a, as an export platform, particularly into the U.S. I think it's it's those geopolitical factors that Michael alluded to, um, you know, whether it's sort of concerns about, you know, some, some of the issues that have been raised around Taiwan sovereignty, you know, there's kind of a list of those things out there. Um, but it's also COVID and sort of the supply chain vulnerabilities that that exposed and sort of you know, the potential value of diversifying uh, your supply chain. So I think all those things cumulatively have we've started to reach the point where firms are really uh, in the at that point in their investment cycle where really starting to consider you know alternatives, the value of diversification. Some of that means coming back to the U.S., but as Michael pointed out. Uh, you know, Mexico, Canada, and other markets in, in or jurisdictions in, in Asia as well are, are under active consideration. Thanks, guys. I know this is uh, an area that people have been monitoring for uh, a good while now, so I appreciate the, the great perspective. Um, but switching gears a little bit now, one thing that I know that we've discussed in the past is the Superfund chemical excise tax uh, from the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, the bipartisan bill that passed last year. So what more do we know about its implementation and how should businesses prepare for the tax's effective start date? Thanks, Daniel. Those are both great questions. And those those that maybe heard us discuss this on the calls in the past, this legislation from last year is now effective. January 1st is the actual date that the legislation signed by President Biden November 15th last year is now in effect. The first date that imports or U.S. manufacturing of the taxable materials goes into effect is July 1st. So companies need to be preparing today uh, for how they will identify what their scope or range of taxable chemicals and taxable substances will be, and then plan the, the processes needed to make sure that they can meet the requirements. And at the same time, I, I think the last call we had not received yet the notice from the IRS that was published on December 14th, which provides some initial guidance, but it also suspended pre previous guidance that taxpayers have relied upon and indicates that that will be reissued. So we are literally watching daily as the rules unfold and how this will occur, including the IRS updating a number of the forms that are necessary for companies to meet the compliance requirements. There is a registration requirement. There is also a biweekly deposit requirement that will take place if you have taxable liability to be filed. And then, of course, there's the quarterly reporting that has to be done. So uh, without getting too deep into the weeds, the tax is designed to raise what was previously covered under the Superfund Act. Uh, that's the informal name for it. There's a long formal name, uh, but essentially that fund previously was used. So the government had a funding source for doing intensive cleanup were needed at various chemical sites that commonly became known as Superfund. 
The tax now goes into effect, as I said, July 1st of this year, and it is on the books through the end of 2031. So we have nine and a half years right now that they have put this revenue uh, raiser into the infrastructure bill and companies will be anticipated to respond. One of the things that's been most interesting to us as advisors is working with companies that initially thought they were not exposed to the tax or subject to the tax, but it goes well beyond both the core basic chemicals that are produced in the US, as well as a range of chemical substances that are manufactured abroad. And that is for competitiveness purposes. In other words, something that is made abroad from one of the base 42 chemicals, such as ethylene, that is converted into a new type of material that contains ethylene is taxable at the time that it is imported to the US because it contained that ethylene made overseas and that foreign producer of the ethylene would not have been subject to the same tax a US producer would be. So that has produced a, a lengthy list. The addition of 33 chemicals were also added to the list because the government lowered the content threshold of those taxable substances that are, when they are imported, will be subject to being reported as taxable. And so what we are finding, our companies are really right now focusing on working through the list published by the IRS and having to do a series of uh, analytics to look at their imports, look at their purchases, identify where the appropriate point for taxation occurs and how they're going to manage the actual reporting compliance process, both immediately for that first uh, reporting quarter, the third quarter of this year, and then onward, because this now fits into a, a tax compliance function. And the other element that's very interesting is that the world has changed since this tax elastic was enforced through the end of 1995, both from a supply chain perspective, as we've covered previously, but also just simply manufacturing processes, global supply chain and global manufacturing platforms that move these chemicals around. There are more of them, and with that threshold lowered, there will be more that will be added likely to that list as they become identified by the IRS and published. And so it is an area that companies need to be monitoring and being aware of, and it, and it reaches into more than just the core chemical companies. So our advice has been to look at the import data, look at production, manufacturing, and start an identification phase to know where you're going to go ultimately with meeting the requirements. And then the other last piece to this on the Superfund tax is that an unintended consequence is going to be that a wide range of the chemicals go into a number of manufacturing platforms that are really valuable right now to bring into the United States. So we were talking earlier on whether or not 301 perhaps has impacted decision-making by companies to move manufacturing or greenfield a new facility in the United States. These taxes are going to have an impact as well. Uh, simply put, solid state electronics, semiconductor production, uh, batteries for uh, electric vehicles, as well as a wide range of other materials that, that the U.S. would like to see an increase in manufacturing platforms are going to have potentially some impacts from these taxes, whether they directly import them or they source them from U.S. chemical companies that are going to be impacted by the base tax impacting their costs and materials. So that's an area that we're seeing develop as, as things are proceeding right now with Superfund. Thank you for that uh, very important update on that piece, Michael. Um, so jumping back a little bit to the tariff talk, uh, last year the U.S. and EU, as you remember, struck a deal regarding uh, Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum and the momentary agreement that was reached on a tariff rate quota system. So I'm wondering if you guys had any updates on that process specifically, and then also uh, the fact that we've heard prospects for an agreement for the U.K. Uh, or even uh, Japan as well. So wondering where all that stands as well. 
Well, thanks, Daniel. I'll, I'll start off. I, I mean, I, I think the biggest story is really around um, the actual implementation uh, and administration of those quotas, and, and Michael will speak to that. But on the policy side, I, I think, you know, sort of the question is, how quickly will they be able to negotiate a deal with the UK and Japan, who are, for very obvious reasons, pushing hard to, to get that done? Um, I, I think it's probably a reasonably safe assumption to say that, you know, whatever comes out of those negotiations will be very much modeled on what was done with the EU. Obviously, there's room for negotiating some of the parameters, but I think we sort of would expect to, to know what it looks like, and you would not uh, expect a process that differs in significant ways and would create additional sort of bureaucratic requirements, you know, for Japan and the UK as well. But again, I think the, the real story is uh, at this point is, you know, how is it working and how are companies navigating? And for that, I'm going to, Michael, turn that over to you. Yeah, so very similar to some of the earlier points I've made, we're watching closely with companies that are relying on their the sourcing of the steel and aluminum. Of course, the, the 301 tariffs and China also having been uh, the focus and spotlight of, of the global manufacturing issues uh, with steel and aluminum. Uh, have have some issues with companies that are excited or, or happy to see the agreements that have gone into place, but the, the tariff rate quota, while not as difficult as an absolute quota, still triggers some difficulties or planning uncertainties. In other words, if the quota fills up before you can clear your goods, whether there's a weather or other shipment delay that occurs, you will be looking at uh, potentially anticipating that you would be able to bring it in at the lower quota rate, but if it's full, uh, you're going to have to pay that quota at that point, and you're, you're sort of stuck. You've brought the goods here, and, and now you're looking at when the numbers close. And so the, the quarterly quota rates per country are causing some consternation as companies need to follow and manage what those numbers look like and their sourcing. So it's actually still not um, we're not home free, I guess I would say, but we are at least seeing some log jams being broken a little bit, and just it's another layer of compliance responsibilities and, and reporting that has to be followed. Thanks, guys. And uh, moving on to USMCA in uh, North America stuff, you know, Mexico was joined by Canada recently in filing a case against the U.S. over its restrictive interpretation of auto rules of origin. The U.S. has maintained that they are properly interpreting the rules. So I'm wondering if you guys could explain, you know, what's going on there and also maybe what that process is going to look like. Sure, Daniel. Well, so, you know, the the, the root of the, the dis disagreement is, you know, what qualifies uh, under the automobile, and to be very clear, this is a very sector-specific uh, dispute, uh, automobile um, uh, rules of origin, uh, with the claim by Mexico and Canada that the U.S. interpretation is excessively strict, making it more difficult for companies manufacturing in, in those two in those two countries to sort of get the value added necessary. And that's something if it's of interest to your uh, the audience, we can take offline and get in much more detail. But the, the, the thrust of that is, is that, uh, you know, having um, not been able to informally address those concerns, uh, they're bringing it to a dispute settlement uh, case, uh, which will require uh, the formation of uh, a series of judges that they'll go through. And it, it's really, it's sort of similar in many regards to what people are probably familiar with on the WTO side, obviously with some differences, but basically having a, a set of judges uh, that the all three um, claimants can agree to, uh, agree to uh, and then a finding uh, that is legally binding. So I, I think 
the the one of the interesting aspects of this is that uh, you know this particular dispute it sort of fits with a pattern for this administration which is you know areas that are of particular sensitivity uh, particularly for the US labor uh, constituency uh, get a lot of attention and are, are really a focus of you know US policy whether it's enforcement in the case of uh, you know the labor cases that we saw earlier uh, or at the end of last year, but also interpretation of regulations, you know, because if taking a step back, the, you know, the origins of the U.S. position on rules of origin and trying to structure it was really to, one, strongly encourage North American protection, but two, uh, even more strongly in, uh, encourage U.S. manufacturing. Uh, and so, again, this is sort of a, a sort of a policy direction and imperative that we see sort of across the board. This is really just a specific manifestation. The only other point I would make is that, um, you know, this is the, the item in the news, but, uh, you know, there are some other simmering disputes, particularly with you know, Mexico's interpretation of investment commitments in the USMCA, uh, particularly in the energy sector. Uh, which has raised uh, concerns you know, amongst U.S. stakeholders that the uh, government, uh, U.S. government is, is taking up. And also just in some of the customs administration and sort of ease of, of trade that have also been of concern for uh, U.S. companies exporting to Mexico. So a variety of issues. But the good news is, you know, USMCA is you know healthy. Uh, disputes arise. It has a dispute settlement mechanism, unlike the WTO, and so these these issues will get uh, managed. Great, thank you, Doug. And so I kind of wanted to end on some legislation that was passed at the end of last year, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act. It's going to be implemented, requiring imports from the Xinjiang region in China to be certified that they are free of forced labor. I know some people have been tracking this. So how do you guys see that uh, the implementation of this and what could be the issues here? Well, Daniel, I think the implementation is going to be sort of tricky. You know, I, I think it's I wouldn't say well known, but I, I think it's 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 understood that, you know, customs is, is going to be challenged to implement this uh, and co companies are going to be challenged to be in compliance. A big part of that is, you know, you're looking at a specific region within a country uh, and then specific sectors, right? And you and you put sort of the, the onus is on uh, the importer to prove a negative, i.e. that, you know, the product that they are importing does not contain forced labor, which is a little bit trickier, right? In terms of, you know, how do you sort of do that? This is something that uh, we as EY are certainly thinking about in terms of, you know, what types of solutions and, you know, are, you know, are there sort of system uh, solutions that you could work that's, you know, automate this because it really is a, uh, a, a tricky one. Um, and it's both, again, I make the point that it's, it's, it's tricky for both customs the comment uh, on the regulation uh, just closed on that. This is, you know, due to be implemented in June, um, and so I think everyone's going to be scrambling a little bit to see how see how this works. It definitely needs to be a point of attention for companies. You know, one in terms of understanding their supply chain and making sure uh, that if they do have these, uh, one if whether or not they have the, the, this is an issue for them. But then two, if they do, how are they going to be able to sort of meet those compliance requirements? And again, we'll need to wait to see further regulatory outcomes, you know, from 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 CBP that'll sort of inform that. But uh, it's not too early to sort of know your supply chain and know whether this is something that, you know, you're going to have to be actively uh, managing to when the time comes. I don't know, Michael, if you had anything you wanted to add on that as well. 
No, I, I think you hit all the key points there, Doug. I, the one element I think, again, is, is there is the ability to use some of the ACE data uh, as part of a comprehensive process to review where impacts can be or where the risking exposures will be. But again, that's something Customs is also looking at, and companies should just be very aware of that and considering how to be as proactive as they can. But it's a, definitely a complex issue. And I would just add one that's not necessarily just going to be limited to U.S. Customs, but, you know, as you see, sort of similar, not necessarily focused on, you know, China human rights, but disclosure, ESG-related uh, legislation that's expected to pass this year in the EU, uh, similar types of uh, requirements, you know, to import into the EU based on, you know, concerns about sustainability or other types of ESG issues. So it's a, it will become a more active issue for traders and, uh, you know, customs compliance professionals across the board. Well, thank you so much both for those uh, great perspectives. So I really appreciate it um, and look forward to the next one. Thank you, Daniel. Yep. Thank you, Daniel. Great to be with you guys again.